The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That passage obviously is preached on the day of Pentecost, in which the passage that our brother will open up for us this evening uh, was fulfilled in part. It's a uh, privilege and a pleasure to uh, introduce our speaker for this evening, uh, Dr. David Barker, who is the uh, Vice President Academic of Heritage Theological Seminary and College and also the Dean of the seminary there. Uh, He was for many years at uh, London Baptist Bible College and Seminary, and then at Heritage, after its merger with Central Baptist Seminary, the Professor of Old Testament, and also held a position in pastoral uh, ministry. And uh, it was during his, part of his tenure anyway, as uh, Professor of Old Testament at Heritage uh, Seminary that I served with him, and in fact I can remember very vividly uh, the first occasion of our uh, meeting. Uh, It was at an Evangelical Theological Society meeting, if I recall correctly, which was held at Queen's University in Kingston. And uh, came away from that conversation with a real sense that uh, here was a brother with whom I had a a coincidence of convictions. And uh, the subsequent years uh, proved that to be the case. And uh, Uh, David has become a a very, very good friend, and what I've appreciated over the years is his uh, passion uh, for the kingdom of the Lord Christ and uh, his God-given ability to open up uh, the Old uh, Testament particularly. And so it's a privilege and a pleasure to have him come and speak to us tonight on uh, the book of Joel and particularly uh, chapter 2. Thank you, Michael, and uh, good evening, everyone. Um, it is great to be here and um, uh, to be able to talk about a passage of scripture that um, is a bit of a challenge, and, uh, but at the same time is a critical and crucial passage uh, to who we are as a church and to our understanding of um, God's work in the world, both in the past uh, and in the present. Um, I was going to say, th- and and uh, I'm glad that we had a, 
what was the word you used, Michael, a convergence of convictions? I'm glad it wasn't a conflict of convictions. Um, uh, but do, I, I do remember that, that uh, engagement with you back at, uh, at Queen's. And um, the, uh, that, was, that was back in the days when London Baptist Bible College and Central Baptist Seminary weren't speaking to each other. Um, and that, probably most of you don't know that history. Uh, but I'll never forget that meeting with, with Dr. Haken and uh, Dr. Fowler uh, and some conversations that went on, which I really think laid the foundations and groundwork for the eventual merger of Central and London to form Heritage, uh, where I have been for, uh, I have, well, I've been part of all that since 1978, so I've been around a long time. Um, but uh, yeah, and it was, it was just, and then Michael and we joined together, Central and London. God did some wonderful things in bringing us together, Baptists who actually could get along with each other. Uh, that is very, very unusual, as you know. And, uh, and God did some, some really, really good things. And uh, I continue to teach at Heritage. Michael continues to teach with us, uh, along with his roles uh, at uh, Toronto Baptist Seminary and also um, down at Southern. So a valued colleague, and, uh, and uh, thank you for the invitation to come and share with you uh, this evening on this text. Uh, you do have a handout. I'll get to it eventually, uh, so you might want to keep that in front of you uh, because I'll eventually pick up where that handout uh, is. Um, I was going to say also that you've got the wrong guy uh, talking about this. Um, my son, uh, Dr. Joel Barker, uh, actually competed, completed his Ph.D. at MacDiv and wrote a 300-page dissertation on the book of Joel. Um, he chose the book that was his namesake, and we got three pages in the Bible, and he wrote 300 pages on those three pages. Uh, so um, I have used uh, his material. I called him and said, Joel, uh, you need to be the guy that's speaking, but they asked me, not you, so tough uh, I'm here and not him. Uh, can I use your material? And of course, I do have a copy of his dissertation and uh, an actually a wonderful sermon that I heard him preach on Acts 2. So um, I have uh, shamelessly uh, stolen much of his information and material, but with his permission. Um, at the same time, a lot of my own thoughts, of course, as well. So tonight we have the task and joy of looking at one of the most enigmatic and yet profound texts in all of the Bible, especially for us as the church in the 21st century. Enigmatic yet profound for our sense of self and place as the church and for our sense of mission in the world. Now perhaps that might seem an odd thing to say as we are exploring the Book of the Twelve in the Old Testament in your summer series. And in particular, as we look at a text from the Old Testament book, uh, the book of Joel. But when a text is quoted from the Old Testament by the leading apostle, upon whom Jesus said he would build his church, and who is, in fact, playing a critical part in laying the foundation of the church, and who quotes that text almost verbatim, on the day of the launch of this thing we call the church, we can't help but understand that this text is crucial for us as the church to examine. And it is certainly critical to our understanding 
of our sense of self, place, and mission in the world. And so, yes, the text we're going to look at is in some ways enigmatic, but it is profound. It's our task for this evening and my assignment from the powers that be that gave me this text to deal with tonight for you. So let's go to our text, and I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, our text is 28 to 32. And if you're following in a Hebrew Bible, and some of you may be tonight, uh, the text is actually chapter 3, verses 1 to 5 in your Hebrew Bible. Dr. Haken has already read the, the um, Acts text that quotes it, but let me read it to you again from uh, the Joel text from which Peter quoted. Verse 28. And afterward I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see, see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit on, in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth and blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Now it is fascinating that Peter stopped in the middle of verse 32. I'm going to comment on that a little later in our presentation. Uh, you might want to find your notes now. I'm kind of picking up now where your notes start. In this text, Joel 2, 28-32, we see in this text as an antidote to the warning of the coming horror of the, uh, and curse of the day of the Lord, the prophet Joel points to a future day of blessing, renewal, redemption, and restoration brought about by the outpouring of God's Spirit, accompanied by prophetic visions, along with cosmic signs and wonders. So it fits as a kind of antidote to some previous very difficult uh, material captured in the idea of a locust plague. I'll come back to that. But further, and this is an important little uh, addition, while that day finds its ultimate and final realization in a day still yet to come, even to us, the ultimate eschaton, the ultimate second coming of Christ, the fact is, it has already come in an inaugural form in the church, launched by the day of Pentecost, the day of the new harvest. Luke, in Acts 2, verses 14 to 16, tells us that Peter said, fellow Jews and all who live in Jerusalem... Let me explain this to you, all the signs and the wonders, the, 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 the fire, the speaking in tongues, all those 
in many ways, cosmic day of the Lord kind of things, he says, these men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel in the last days. And then he quotes our text. So in some sense, and we've got to spend some time on this, the Joel text has its realization on the day of Pentecost, the celebration of the new harvest, and the launch of the church. So, first, let's look at the context of our Joel text. The book of Joel, the theme, if you were to say the book of Joel, you would immediately need to say, Day of the Lord. Okay? And when I teach the minor prophets, which, by the way, is a misnomer, they are not minor prophets in compared to major prophets. They are just as important as Isaiah. And so it's diff- I think it's awkward to talk about the minor prophets. I do like the phrase, the Book of the Twelve. It's much more uh, traditionally uh, orthodox. But when I teach my students um, in, throughout the minor prophets, we use that, I, I try to teach them, if I say Hosea, they need to come back with something right away. If I say Joel, they need to come back with something right away. If I say Zephaniah, they need to come back. If I say Haggai, they need to come back. And so if I say Hosea, they need to say Gomer, broken marriage, something like that. If I say Zephaniah, they should say Day of the Lord. If I say Haggai, they should say Rebuild the Temple. And I think Dr. Haken went through some of that uh, with you last week. And so if when, immediately, as soon as you think of Joel, you should think of two things. Locust plague, Day of the Lord. And that really, in many ways, captures the essence of what's going on. Um, and so the book of Joel centers on the theme of the Day of the Lord. Zephaniah picks up on the same theme, as I mentioned, along with many of the other prophets who talk about this thing called the Day of the Lord. Amos is another example. And so Joel, at the beginning of his book, looking back at uh, verse 4, what the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten, what the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten, what the young locusts have left, the other locusts have eaten, that's chapter 1, verse 4. He uses the invasion of a locust plague as a harbinger of a greater plague to come, namely the invasion of a foreign power that will conquer and destroy. Now, whether that invasion of that foreign power is a 9th century event, which many commentators think that it is, 9th century BC, whether it's a 6th century event, such as uh, the Babylonian invasion, which I personally think that's what he's talking about, or some commentators and scholars argue that it's a post-exilic event, which again, may be a legitimate possibility. And the point is, as Dr. Haken pointed out last week, the Book of the Twelve, or the Minor Prophets, if you like, speak canonically to the people of God in whatever situation of oppression, exile, or curse they found themselves. You see, God has called his people Israel, had called his people Israel to faithfulness to a covenant that he made with them way back in the days of Abraham and Moses. And according to Deuteronomy 28, when they were faithful to that covenant, they would be blessed. Blessed in the city, blessed in the country, your needing baskets, your families, your military endeavors, you'll be, you'll be blessed. And when they were unfaithful, 
they would be cursed. And the prophets, prophets like Joel and Amos and Hosea and the rest, covenant revivalists is what I like to call these guys, all right, were constantly warning the people of God of the dire consequences of the curses of the Deuteronomic covenant, calling them back to covenant faithfulness. So, if you look at Joel chapter 1, verse 15, Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Fascinating little play on words there. It will come like destruction. It's the word, it's the word sod. From the Almighty, Shaddai. You get the sound. Got a little, got a little poetic uh, assonance happening there. It will come like sowed or showed from the Shaddai. Cool how that happens, eh? That's why you need to learn Hebrew. Has not the food been cut off before our very eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God, and, and on and on it goes. Then now look at chapter 2, verse, verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, shuv. Turn, return, repent, to return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Interesting. Rend your heart, not your garments. God looks on the heart, not on the externals, right? Return, shuv, again, to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. That's a clear reference back to Exodus 34, where God had to be prevailed upon by Moses to relent from destroying his people. And who knows, he may turn, shuv, fascinating, same word, right? And have pity and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. And so we're set up in the, be- the beginning part of the book of Joel with this locust plague and, the, and the, the, that coming as a harbinger of this disaster that's going to come upon the land and the call of the people, call to the people to return and to turn back to God. They were covenant revivalists constantly warning the people of God of the dire consequences of the curse of the Deuteronomy covenant and calling them back to, covenant, to repentance and covenant faithfulness. And so, back to our idea of where we lock it in historically, irrespective of where we land, Joel, chronologically or historically, 9th century, 6th century, post-exilic, whatever, the book is in the canon of Scripture and it spoke prophetically to the people of God in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, and any time warning them of the realities of Deuteronomy 28. Now, while we are not Old Testament Israel, and we're not, And while the covenant curses and blessings recorded in Deuteronomy 28 revolve around a nation and a geopolitically constructed people under an old covenant, which the church is not, we dare not think that we are outside the withdrawal of God's blessing as his people. In other words, the canonical prophetic word continues to speak. 9th century, 6th century, post-exilic, 21st century A.D., The prophetic word continues to speak. And we dare not think that we are outside the withdrawal of God's blessing, even as his people, if we're not faithful to the person, mission, spirituality, and reality of the new covenant that is found in Jesus Christ. But, inevitably, 
And this is now where we're going, and we're getting up to where we're, what we want to talk about tonight. Inevitably, God restores and redeems his covenant people. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord will be jealous for his, for his land and take pity on his people. The Lord will reply to them, I am sending you grain, new wine, and oil. That was a prophetic expression of God's blessing and Deuteronomic blessing coming upon them, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. And he goes on and on and talks about how he's going to restore and redeem and renew. Verse, uh, verse 21, Surely he has done great things. Be not afraid, O land. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Be not afraid. Verse 23, Be glad, O people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you autumn rains, sign of Deuteronomic blessing. Abundant showers, spring rains, threshing floors uh, filled, new wine and oil. I'll repay you. And he goes back to the locusts, that which was a harbinger and actually an evidence of the curse of God. He would redeem and renew. Verse 26, you will have plenty to eat until you are full and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed and you will know that I, uh, that I am in Israel. I am with you. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. And afterward, and now we're into our text, I will pour out my spirit on all people. So inevitably, God restores and redeems his covenant people. And all the covenant blessings of Deuteronomy 28 and more will eventually be God's people. He will not abandon his people. And even Hosea tells the same story, cast in the context of a husband going after a wayward wife and a father going after his wayward children. And so tonight, in Joel 2, 28-32, we are in the context of the restoration and redemption of God's people and even the world. It's an act of grace and mercy as God invades in power and spirit not because of anything his people have done, but simply because he is jealous. Jealous for his people. Jealous for his creation. And will not let his people go. And that ought to just bring out a hearty amen, praise the Lord, we've got a chance. Because we all know, left to ourselves, we'd never make it. All right, so just a bit of an analysis and a brief exposition, and then I want to take it into implications and applications for the life of the church today. Uh, Daniel Trier, in an article in the Journal of Evangelical Theological Society, helpfully breaks the section down into three parts. Uh, Part one, the outpouring of the Spirit in verses 28 to 29. I'll come back to that. Part two, the signs of the day of the Lord in verses 30 and 31. And then part three, the promise of deliverance, in verse 32. So backing up just a little bit, we start with the outpouring of the Spirit in 28 and 29, and literarily, okay, something that we as exegetes need to be very thoughtful of and careful of and observant of, is that you've got something called an inclusio. An inclusio is a bracketing structure that frames a literary unit and kind of sets the theme or the tone of the material in between. It's like a sandwich. And so you got the, the boundaries of the sandwich, and the boundaries, or the inclusio here, is the word spirit, ruach. Verse 28, and afterward I will pour out my spirit on all people. Read down through the prophesying of, of sons and daughters and servants and everybody. And then at the end of verse, verse 29, I will pour out my spirit in those days. 
So that frames or brackets the first section of Joel's little, of the little section here in Joel. And we call, I call it, or we've, uh, Trier has called it, the outpouring of the Spirit. And so what Joel is saying is that after the day of destruction, after the day of the judgment part of the day of the Lord, there will come a time of restoration and renewal, what we might call the blessing part of the day of the Lord, which there was and always was. It wasn't just terror. It wasn't just darkness. It wasn't just destruction. There was always a blessing and a restoration part to the day of the Lord. And this day of restoration and renewal will have a distinct and unusual pouring out of the Spirit, a beautiful and powerful thing, and it will be poured out on all humankind, which I argue is the meaning of all flesh, not just all Israel in terms of a nation, but there is the promise that the goy, that the goyim can be part of this. And it will be poured out on all humankind, and young and old and men and women will see and hear and proclaim prophetic visions which, by the way, are the normal accompaniments of the, of the pouring out of the prophetic spirit. So we start with an outpouring of God's spirit, an act of grace in bringing hope and restoration to his people. Then part two, the signs of the day of the Lord in verses 30 and 31. Cosmic signs will be part of the invading day of the Lord. They were part of the negative invasion Skip back to verse chapter 2, verse 20. It's, it's on the negative side, on the destructive side, on the darkness side. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 10, you've before, the, before them, the, the armies, the invading armies that the locusts had, had been a harbinger of. Before them, the earth shakes, the sky trembles, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars shine, no longer shine, the Lord thunders, etc., so they were part of the invasion of, of the armies in chapter 2, verse 10. But now this sun darkening and this cosmic signs of the day of the Lord are part of the Spirit's outpouring. And they are part of both the judgment and renewal that's captured in the day of the Lord. The way that I like to describe it, and I'm, this is not unique to me, it's I found it in some of my reading and and I think it's a great way to describe it, what we have here is a new Exodus Sinai event. As the Exodus and Sinai brought about a covenant people, a nation, to be the redemptive witness in the world, we are bringing on a second Exodus, a, a new Exodus Sinai event with blood and fire and smoke and darkness that was all about the, the plagues in Egypt and, and Mount Sinai. It's all hearkening back to that. A new Exodus Sinai event, blood, fire, smoke, darkness, and this new Exodus Sinai event with its judgment and terror will bring about a new day of restoration in the same way that ancient Israel under Moses was to bring about a new day of restoration and renewal for the nations. And they were to carry forward the Abrahamic covenant of being a blessing to the nations. They always did have a mission. The mission did not start in Matthew 28. The mission started in Genesis 12 and invaded and permeated everything that Israel was to be in the world. So a new Exodus Sinai event is promised here with judgment and terror and to bring about that new day of restoration. And so we are seeing that the day of the Lord includes both judgment and salvation in the same way that the Exodus Sinai event brought both. And then third, the promise of deliverance, a third part of our section here, verse 32. 
And again, we've got a little inclusio going on here. You've got the word call in the first line. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And as you read on down through the very last line, among the survivors whom the Lord calls. And again, you've got this little bracketing thing happening where everything in between is being, is being talked about as the call of God on people and the responsibility of people to call on God. And you'll notice that both ideas are there. The responsibility of the people of God to call and the reality that, in fact, God calls his people. Fascinating to see that, that responsibility of humankind to respond, but the recognition that there's a sovereign act of God in bringing people to himself. Very often, so often, we see in Scripture that coming together, that very interesting tension of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. But again, marked by the inclusio around the word call, there is salvation for all who call upon the name of the Lord. Now, I just we should note in passing that whenever we talk about salvation in the Old Testament, it is never, or rarely, and I would probably think never, simply saved from sin and saved from hell. Simply a kind of what we call a spiritual salvation. And inevitably has to do with salvation from danger and death and captivity. And I think the best way to capture it is salvation from anything that would take them out of the covenantal presence and blessing of God. Whether that was into captivity, whether death, whatever it might be. So anything that would take them out of the covenantal presence and blessing of God. And the two ideas, spiritual and physical, were never thought of as different categories. They always talked about the complete person in relationship with God. And probably better, they always talked about the, a complete people or a nation in relationship with God and that kind of salvation. And then, per our text, the theocratic center of the world, Jerusalem and Mount Zion, will be the place and the engine for that salvation. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And we'll get to Romans 10 in a minute. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And he carries on, and this is what Peter skipped, okay, or didn't include. But I think needs, we need to reflect on that, okay, and, 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 and there's, there's some the value to reflect on that. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, the, the, the theocratic center of the world, the, the place in the engine of restoration and renewal. There will be deliverance, the Lord has said, among the survivors who the Lord comes. And we recognize that as the last line states, that calling to salvation comes from God himself. Yes, people are to call. Human responsibility. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Yet God calls divine sovereignty. And so we see the divine human cooperative at work as we see so often in Scripture. So, three parts to uh, the uh, little section that we're dealing with here. The outpouring of the Spirit, verses 28 and 29, captured or identified by the little inclusio wrapped around the word Spirit, Ruach. The second part, the signs of the day of the Lord, verses 30 and 31, the eschatological, uh, cosmic, apocalyptic signs, as you were, if you will. And then the promise of deliverance in verse 32, again, Boundaried by that inclusio on the word call and the responsibility and the sovereignty of God being shown in both aspects and the centrality of the theocratic center of the world 
Mount Zion and Jerusalem being the place in the engine of that evangelistic call. Okay. So just now some reflections and comments. And I'd like to think about this just a little bit more. I want to take it from just looking at the text to some reflective things. The first thing is this. We need to understand that the prophecy of a future unique outpouring of the Spirit is not unique to Joel. It is something that was a theme of the prophets. In the Old Testament, the Spirit had been active. It was certainly there, right from the moment of creation, and we sang songs that reflected that idea. But in the Old Testament, the Spirit had come and gone as an empowering presence on kings and prophets. Came upon a king and a prophet and empowered him for the task of the mission that that king and prophet, that, 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 that king and prophet was, was intended to do. And that coming and going of the Spirit had been active since Moses and even before. But there was always this notion in the Old Testament prophets that this selective coming and going would eventually become an outpouring. By the way, it's the same word that's used for the outpouring or the pouring of blood on a, in a sacrificial situation. Would eventually become an outpouring on all covenant people. And there was always the anticipation in the prophets that the externalities, this coming and going of the Spirit, and the externalities of temple and Torah, wrapped around the temple, wrapped around the law, the Torah, that drove the Old Covenant would be superseded. This is important. There was always the idea in the prophets that the externalities of the temple and Torah and the coming and going of the Spirit would be superseded by the internality of the empowering presence of the Spirit on all covenant people in a new covenant. Isaiah talks about it. Jeremiah talks about it. Ezekiel, Zechariah. And yes, it was all set in the context of a new covenant. Jeremiah 31 is very clear. And it would be a covenant, and this is critical as well as we think through this thing, it would be a covenant that would culminate the old, would bring to completion the old. And, uh, I've heard covenants talked about in all kinds of different ways, but the way I see the covenants working is, is you've, you've got the covenants building on each other. I, keep, I, kind, of, I, I, I kind of build it in, 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 in sequencing pyramids on top of each other and building on each other. And Christ did not come to abolish the law. He did not come to abolish the old covenant. He came to fulfill it, to bring it to his completion, to bring it, bring it to, to his totality. And that's what we have, is that in the old covenant, we've got the externality of the temple and Torah, the coming and going of the spirit. But when Jesus came and established the new covenant, all of a sudden that law becomes something that is internalized. And the, the notion of pneuma as a permanent presence, baptizing, and empowering all covenant people for the sake of the mission of the church has now become a reality, reality in Christ. Reality that was founded in the redemptive act of a substitutionary atonement on the cross. 
That new covenant found in Christ that culminates everything that's gone before, that new covenant is now lived out in the people of God called the church, Christ's body, building, bride, community, and family. And the church is the culmination. It's the telos, if you like. It's the completion. It's the perfection of all that the prophets spoke. Spoke about in the Old Testament. And so the prophets look forward to a new day, a new covenant era in which the Spirit would be an empowering presence on all people of covenant as a culminating event for God's redemptive purposes and redeemed people. Second, the emphasis that Joel uses here on all people is also not new. And I do believe that both Joel and Peter, who quoted Joel, understood this to mean all people, all nations, not just all Israelites. And I certainly do believe that for sure. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, saw it this way as he wrote the material and quoted Joel, quoted, basically recorded Peter quoting Joel for the church. Gentile and Jew combination. And so right from the time of the Abrahamic covenant onwards, The nations were to be blessed. The nations, the Goyim, were to be blessed by God's redemptive plan through his people and were welcome as participants in the covenantal life of the people of God. The prophets regularly talked about the inclusion of the Gentiles in the redemptive work of God. Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, and many other texts. And so the Gentiles, the Goyim, all who called upon the name of the Lord, were to be part of this amazing promise right from the start and part of this amazing project called the Day of the Lord and the bringing about the final stage of the kingdom of God. So again, this is not new or unique to Joel. It's a major prophetic idea that all people would be included in this wonderful event. Third, something else I think we need to reflect on. The cosmic signs and wonders point, yes, to an ultimate eschatological fulfillment wrapped around the second coming of Christ, for sure. But the amazing events of Pentecost are a real inauguration and a real inaugural realization of these events. So yes, We can go to Revelation 6, verse 12, and the sixth seal with its earthquake and the sun turned black and the moon turned to blood. We can go to Revelation 8, verses 6 to 12, with the four trumpets, the earthquakes and the fire and the moon to blood and the sun darkened. Yes, we can go to Matthew 24, 27 to 31, at the second coming of the Son of Man. Matthew then quotes, or Jesus then quotes, Isaiah 13, 10, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Yes, we can go there, and yes, we do recognize that there is an ultimate final realization in the eschaton, still future to us as we await the second coming of Christ. And that certainly is the hope of the believer. It's the hope of the church. But Peter makes it clear And the reason why I'm emphasizing this is I was raised in a slightly different theological tradition than you are, you have been. Um, 
I'm not real sure how much I should say, but I was raised in a solid dispensational world. And we struggled with this text. And we, we danced around it. And we played with what Peter said. And Peter said, this is that. This is it. It's happening. We, we played all kinds of games. You know, it was a Joel-like prophecy or something like that. So that's kind of why I'm, I'm making a bit of a point here. It's, it's important to me. Joel makes it clear. Pentecost was a real participant in Joel's prophecy. He said, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Did he see the events of this time as the total fulfillment of Joel? We, we don't really know. What about Luke, who wrote it to the church? Did he see it as the final and ultimate fulfillment of Joel? Probably not. But they certainly recognized that there was a trajectory, there was something going on here that caused them to take seriously that the events that had happened at Pentecost were, in fact, a significant part of the realization of Joel's statement. We do know that what happened at Pentecost was enough for them to connect what Joel said with what was happening. The pouring out of the Spirit, the language in the tongues, the prophetic speaking by Peter, the fire. And they saw themselves in line with the prophetic vision and dream-soaked word of the Old Testament found in Joel and in many other prophets, by the way. And they saw themselves as real participants in this part of the restoration and renewal aspects of the day of the Lord for God's people and all creation. And then fourth, salvation and deliverance is the hope and promise for all who call upon the name of the Lord, even in the context of the terror of the day of the Lord. Yes, the day of the Lord was a day of darkness and gloom. And I'm, I'm amused by, by uh, what Amos had to say um, in Amos chapter 5. I'm all, I always chuckle at this, at this text where uh, he says to uh, really an apostate people, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? The day will be darkness and not light. And this is the amusing part. It will be though as a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. And as though he entered his house and rested his hand against the wall <laughs> only to have a snake bite him. I think Amos had a he was a he was a farmer right from down in Tekoa and he understood these earthy kinds of things right will not the day of the Lord be darkness not light pitch dark without a ray of brightness and then he goes on and he blasts them for their hypocritical worship I hate your festivals and God says I hate your festivals so yeah the day the day of the Lord was a day of darkness and doom and it was certainly portrayed by that by the that way as the prophets but even in Amos if you read the last chapter, chapter 9, there was hope and promise attached to the day of the Lord. Look at chapter, Joel chapter 3, verse 1. In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and there will be vindication as he enters into judgment. Look at verse 14, chapter 3, verse 14. Um, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will be darkened. The stars will no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and sky will tremble. But the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. 
Then you know that then you know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill, Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her, and then all the new wine and, and oil and all the beautiful stuff that, that is attached to the eschatological hope and promises of God's people. So it's a hope and promise attached to the day of the Lord and vindication for the people of God. And so anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved which, of course, is quoted by Paul in Romans 10.13. And again, we need to understand that both Paul and Joel speak of a complete salvation, spiritual and physical. I think when we read just Joel, when we read just Romans, when we read just Paul, we are prone to think in terms only of a spiritual salvation. I think that's a mistake. Salvation has always been captured in a total and complete uh, renewal and restoration of the person and creation and a people. There wasn't this dichotomy between the physical and the spiritual. And I think that both Paul and Joel speak of a complete salvation, spiritual and physical. And I believe we lose part of the message of the gospel when we lose the hope of a restored creation, a new heavens and a new earth, a new Jerusalem, a new Eden, and a complete salvation of persons and creation. But the prophets were always passionate about hope and salvation, not just judgment and terror. Not only were the prophets, and I like this idea, not only were the prophets covenant revivalists, they were also covenant evangelists. So where do we go with all this? What do we take away? What are the things, what what, what do we as the people of God, as we read Joel 2, think about some of the implications As we reflect on some of the ideas that are found here, what do we take away from all of this? First, I would suggest this. We learn a hermeneutic in reading the prophets. We learn a hermeneutic in reading prophets. The Old Testament prophets spoke of future things near and far. While they had an idea of the kind of things that would come, time and place was something that they had no idea about. And so now we understand that most prophecy, and I would argue for this, that most prophecy speaks of both inauguration and consummation. I don't think I've used that phrase yet. Inauguration and consummation. And prophets spoke, didn't always see it clearly in time and place, but they often spoke of an inauguration that was eventually realized and wrapped around a first coming of Christ and the establishment of the church as the evidence of God's inaugurated final stage of his kingdom. But inherent with that, inauguration was a consummation wrapped around a second coming of Christ and a bringing about of the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, new creation, the new Eden that was talked about in Revelation 21 and 22 as evidence of God's consummated final stage of his kingdom. So we learn a hermeneutic that is captured in the phrase, now but not yet. Inaugurated and consummated. We read prophecy in that kind of framework. And we as a church are an integral part of the now, the inauguration, while we wait for the not yet, the consummation of Christ's second coming. So we learn a new hermeneutic, 
or we learn a hermeneutic, not, not a new hermeneutic, we learn a hermeneutic in reading the prophets, and it does have implications for how the prophets speak pointedly to the life of the church today, not just in some sweet by-and-by future eschatological event. Second, another thing we take away from this text is that we realize that we are a people of both Jew and Gentile. The geopolitical realities of Israel, Jerusalem, and a national identity are gone. The church is the new Israel. It was anticipated in the old covenant. It is realized in the new covenant. And we have moved from temple and Torah and a political state to Numa, spirit, and scattered, and multi-ethnic, multilingual, this kind of people of God, infiltrating all parts of the world and calling people out of all people, every tongue, tribe, and nation, multi-ethnic, multinational in the right sense of the word, calling people out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And in the process, we are establishing outposts of that kingdom throughout the world, Communities, these are called local churches, communities of God's covenantal people of every tongue, tribe, and nation. And the more that our churches become multi, multi-ethnic, multilingual, multicolor, multinational, in the right sense of the word, the closer we come to the eschaton. And the more we, are under, we understand that we are truly the people of God, in the realization of the inauguration of God's final stage of the kingdom. Number three. We sung a lot about this, and we, we, the songs that we sang just at the beginning of the service were phenomenal, especially in the emphasis on the Spirit. We also realize that we are a people empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's coming at Pentecost, and, and, and I don't have time to develop what I would, a theology of the Holy Spirit, but I, we, I, I believe we get confused about what we would call the regenerative, regenerative and, and indwelling work of the Spirit versus what happened at Pentecost, which was an empowering and baptizing work of the Spirit. And I argue that you cannot be a child of God at any time, Old Covenant or New Covenant, without the permanent presence of the Spirit in our lives. The call to be holy is an Old Testament call. And the only way that we can be holy is through the power of the Spirit. So it seems to me it's rather absurd that the indwelling Spirit that regenerated people and dwelt them for sanctification and, 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 and personal holiness and life with God was something that came at Pentecost and that, that the Old Testament believers didn't have. To me, that's absurd. I, I cannot understand that. And I, I came to that conclusion through reading a wonderful book that was published years ago by Leon Wood, entitled The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And as a dispensational Baptist, he came up with that conclusion, and he was really radical in doing that kind of thing. I think the reform thinking have had it, has had it right all along. But what happened at Pentecost was not to do with, in my view, the regenerative indwelling presence of the Spirit. That's been something that's going on from, from the beginning of time, when people were part of the people of God. 
But what happened at Pentecost, what we call the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, was a spirit of empowerment for mission and task. Rooted in the old covenant, the old covenant reality of the Spirit coming and going and empowering people for task and mission, now transferring into a new covenant era where he would pour out his Spirit on all people for mission and task. For the mission of the gospel, for the mission of the church, for the mission of the kingdom of God, for the mission of calling people from darkness into the kingdom of the, into the, kingdom of the light of God's dear Son. In the Old Testament, that empowerment came upon kings and prophets in times and places, here and there, now and then. We see it coming upon Moses and Joshua and Saul and David. The Spirit came and left. Saul is a classic example. He was a victim of that. We know that story well, and David knew it well. <laughs> David, terrified by what he saw, what he saw in Saul, dodging spears, right? he's playing his harp, after the Spirit of God had left him as an empowerment spirit for, for, for kingship, David knew that, that reality of the Spirit leaving, prayed in Psalm 51, please God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. The Spirit of empowerment, the Spirit for kingship, he saw it leave Saul when he sinned with Bathsheba. His fear was the loss of empowerment to serve as king. But now that Spirit has come upon all people as his church. And it's fascinating because that's a realization of Moses' statement in Numbers 11:26. I don't know whether you know that story. A couple of dudes by the name of Eldad and Medad were prophesying by the Spirit and Joshua was complaining about it. And Moses writes, Moses says to Joshua, I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that he would put his Spirit on them. You know what happened at Pentecost? Moses' wish came true. And Joel prophesied it. And Peter quoted it. And Luke recorded it for the church. And so that spirit has come upon all people as his church. And we have been baptized by that spirit to take our place in the body of Christ and to be empowered for mission in the, in the world. And this has huge implications for us as the church. The first one is this. If this is true, and the Spirit has come upon us in this kind of way, collectively, communally, and as a pouring out upon all people, we as a church dare not be about anything but the mission of God in the world. Because that's why the Spirit came. And if we're about anything else but that, we have real serious questions about who we are when we call ourselves a church. The baptizing Spirit was given at Pentecost for that purpose. Second, we also understand that the empowering presence can be removed. I'm convinced of that. It can be removed from each of us as individuals, community as a church. I don't think the Spirit comes and goes in the same way it does in the Old Testament, but we all know. And Paul talks about being set aside. Number three. All that we do for Christ, if, if, if Pentecost is true, the Spirit's coming is true, all that we do for Christ and his kingdom must be done in the power of the Spirit. Now, I haven't quite figured out what that means in its totality. But there's huge implication for the forms and structures and strategies we put in place to proclaim Christ's kingdom in the world. If it is not bathed in prayer, 
If it is not of the Spirit, morally, ethically, strategically, we work in the power of the flesh, and that is never good. So, folks, this may be the biggest takeaway of the evening. We are a Spirit-empowered people, a people who are participating in the inauguration of the blessings of the day of the Lord, who are under the mission of the gospel to the nations. At Pentecost, many denied and laughed and mocked at the bizarre spirit-empowered events happening around them. And today, outside the church, we face the same kind of response. But my question is, what about inside the church? Do we really believe that Joel's prophecy has come true at Pentecost for the church and for us in the 21st century? And do we believe that the Spirit has been poured out upon us? Yes, I would argue that the kickoff, if you like, in the same way a rocket is blasted off, was accompanied by signs and wonders and all kinds of weird and wild stuff. We're kind of in the aftermath of all of that in terms of the signs and wonders that are going on, although I'm not close to the fact that signs and wonders can still happen if God chooses to use them. But we tru- do we, as the people of God, truly believe that we are in a spirit-empowered people as described by Joel and fulfilled in an inaugural way, in a now-but-not-yet way, at Pentecost? What about inside the church? Our capacity for self-delusion is quite remarkable. C.S. Lewis and the magician's nephew in the Chronicles of Narnia tells the story of small-minded and mean-spirited Uncle Andrew. While Aslan is singing Narnia into existence, Uncle Andrew manages to convince himself that it is really happening, that the lion is just roaring. And Lewis writes, And the longer and more beautifully the lion sang, the harder Uncle Andrew tried to make himself believe that he could hear nothing but roaring. Now, the trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you very often succeed. Uncle Andrew did. He soon did hear nothing but roaring in Aslan's song. And soon he couldn't have heard anything else, even if he had wanted to. As a church, we are Christ's spirit-empowered people in an inaugural fulfillment of Joel's prophecy with the task of not only being the new covenant people of God in the world, the Israel of God, but empowered by that spirit for the task of incessantly calling everyone we can to be saved, saved from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the calling, the called to salvation. Are we, here, are we only hearing a lion roaring reading a text that has no no impact or implication for us today, or are we truly believing that as a spirit-empowered people, we are now part of that now-but-not-yet kingdom of God, which is all about the mission of the gospel? What does that mean for our priorities and practices as his church? Third takeaway is we need to understand that all of this is wrapped wrapped around Jesus Christ. He is the agent of the new covenant. He is the head of the church. He is the one who sends the Spirit. So everything we are and do as the people of Joel's prophecy at Pentecost is wrapped around Christ. And we are fundamentally and profoundly Christological. So we understand who we are as the church of Jesus Christ in the world. 
And then lastly, we are all about, we are a people who are all about calling the called to call for salvation. (laughs) We are all about calling the called to call for salvation. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And Paul makes it clear that there's a huge agency expectation for the church to ensure that there is a preacher who is heard. Now it is interesting, and I said I was going to comment on this. Peter stopped before the end of verse 32 in Joel, and the references to Zion and Jerusalem. I find that fascinating. Not quite sure why he did that. But I would argue that Joel's prophecy, yes, involves Zion and Jerusalem. And for whatever reason, Peter didn't develop this, but Paul sure does later on when he says that the church today is Zion. We are the new Israel. We are the Israel of God. We are the seed of Abraham. Galatians, Romans, Galatians 6 in particular. You are the Israel of God. And so I am convinced that we, and so when, when Joel says, for on Mount Zion in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the survivors among the, whom the Lord calls, you know what? That's us. That's the church. We are the new Jerusalem in its now but not yet form and anticipating the ultimate and final new Jerusalem. We are the new Israel. We are the people of God. There is only one people of God in the world today, not two. And we fulfill those prophecies and we step in line with the Zion and Jerusalem of the Old Covenant as the church of Jesus Christ in the New. So Paul makes it clear in Galatians 6 and elsewhere that the church is the Israel of God, the evidence of the new creation to come. And so salvation is found in that new Israel of God, the church, us, Christ is our head. Joel 2, 28-32. My assignment and task for the evening. Thank you, whoever gave me that responsibility. Enigmatic but profound. But critical to our sense of place and mission in the world as the church launched at Pentecost. As the realized kingdom of God inaugurated in Christ and the new covenant. The message of the prophets is the voice of God to the church. May we hear and heed. God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.